I'm Ren Young. And I'm Katrina Vargas. And And this this is That Other F Word. All right, we are back with part two. We know that you have been... So exciting. I I can tell how excited you are about this by the way that you sighed before (laughs) you began this. Do it again. More energy. Let's bring it in here, Ren. We're excited for part two. It's dramatic. It's a dramatic reading. Wake the baby. Oh, no, he's awake. (laughs) Remember, his father can't put him down for a nap. Therefore, he's awake. Yay. All right. On that note, Alicia's back with the remainder of her episode. We know you have been waiting with bated breath for like a full seven days to hear the second part of this. Um, we're really like proud to share it with you. Um, so we hope you enjoy the second part of our interview with Dr. Alicia Lola Jones. Uh-huh. I'm done. <laughs> so when you're deciding how to respond to people, not only do you have to take into account like your career, you know, if you're showing people around a school, you know, the reaction they're going to have to you. But also um, in reading about white fragility, I understand that a lot of people of color just kind of decide not to address things because in their experience, it's kind of a fruitless endeavor. (laughs) Um, So could you talk to us a little bit about that? Like, how do you, how do you decide how to respond and what have some of the reactions been? And also, um, can you talk a little bit about white tears? Yeah. (laughs) Okay, okay, okay. Um, God knows I can. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, so two things. In my field right now, as with everybody's jobs, it seems, um, there's been this huge discussion about decolonizing music research. Um, And it was sparked because of an open letter of an African-American independent scholar. So someone who's not employed by a university. And many of us as African-American scholars understand that, well, I I use the phrase, I'm not searching for other plantations. And what that means is I mentor people to not have the university as their only source of income. I think intellectually, it it makes you beholden in a way that um, is too reminiscent of, of of exploitation and slavery. So she is, she represents the new wave of scholars who are creating entire organizations um, in order to support their vision. And she wrote an open letter to the president of our organization, the Society for Ethnomusicology. And she was just like, y'all present yourself as liberal, um, but in many ways, those who present themselves as white liberals are very dangerous because of the presumption that they've arrived, as opposed to it being a process. Just in the same way that it's a process for me to continue learning about myself, other cultures, um, it's, you don't arrive. There is no card carrying. And as a result of her well put letter, people's brains broke. <laughs> like people were just like, how dare you tell me I am not a part of the decolonial movement. And from across the pond in England to across the other pond in the Pacific, people have been like losing their stuff because she said, 
I don't feel comfortable coming to paying money, being a member. She wrote, I don't feel comfortable in these ways anymore. And I don't think that I want to be part of this guild. And unfortunately, the president of our organization was just like, I think you will enjoy the new strides that we're making. And now you will find your place here. And my, we, we have this term in academia, you know, like Dr. Vater, like your, it's a German term for your, the person who was your mentor. Well, my, the person who was like my grandfather in the field, Wade and Gage Averill, and he said, cut the crap. This is not, there's nothing that has changed in this society. You're lying to this woman and uh, we need to do better and we need to stop just saying stuff, but doing the actual legitimate uh, change. And so after that, all of the African-American and African scholars went silent. Nobody, it was just an understood, let's just watch. Let's just see what folks are going to say. And one of my good friends, Luis Manuel Garcia, he inboxed me and he was just like, I know you are observing the conversation and I'm just gonna step in. You get your popcorn, I got this because I took my good medication. I haven't been feeling well, but now I feel real good. And I got stuff to say, I got observations. So don't worry, don't worry. It came at a point where we were exhausted, tired. I mean, we were already saying, our inboxes were get inundated, getting inundated from people who wanted to get more conscious, who needed more content for their lectures for free. They wanted us to give of our life's work for free. We're seeing our bodies broken on the streets. Our spirits are broken because our cultural consciousness is I am because we are. It's not separate. It is very present. I had nothing when I saw that. And so when we pulled back, he actually stepped in and said, have y'all noticed none of the black scholars are talking? Have y'all noticed that they are through with it? Have y'all noticed? And it was actually like, no, we, we hadn't noticed. And I'm like, y'all, y'all are researchers of culture. How do you not get this? So it's, it's been really interesting, yes, to just observe it unfold and be okay with divesting, but also stating the terms of engagement. You know, people have reached out and said, will you help me with literature for my course on African-American music? The same people who wouldn't take the courses with me in graduate school, but they want my syllabus. Absolutely not. We're not doing that. If you want to learn about it, I teach courses online and in person. We can do that. Um, with regard That's to awesome. like... <laughs> with regard to white tears um there there was there was a moment uh recently where i had to restate terms of engagement um and i without going through the entire scenario i shared with a person that i didn't feel comfortable with their presence professionally and I kind of wanted to kind of keep some aspects of my, my life to myself. And when I told them I didn't want to discuss certain things about work, this white woman began to cry. We were in a coffee shop. Now, it might not seem like much, but this happened, and I cannot make this up. I got journal entries for this. 
it happened within a week of that arrest at Starbucks of those black men who were sitting there waiting for a meeting. Yeah. She begins to cry. The white women beside me see her. And in my periphery, they were like, are you seriously, <laughs> are you doing this? And she asked if we could step outside to talk further. And I said, actually, no, thank you. I'm going to sit right here. I got allergies. I'm not stepping outside. And she said, <laughs> she said, please, let's step outside. As soon as we step outside, she said, I feel like right now I am becoming the person people write about in the blogs of white tears. And I'm like, yes. this is that. This is that moment. This is how, yes. I said, we are in a public space and you are asking for us to walk closer together and you don't even understand how what you're doing right now is jeopardizing me. We cannot walk together. And that was the first time I ever told a person we cannot be friends. Calvin and I have a saying that if you aspire to be an ally, you have to be willing to put your life on the line. Because at any moment, the illogical behavior of our society could mean society could mean I lose my life. Yes. And if you are unwilling to put your life and your comfort to the side, we don't need to break bread. We don't have to walk closely together. I just need to be your colleague. Right. We don't have to braid each other's hair. I like mm -hmm. cornrows. <laughs> so. <laughs> no. oh. so that was the first time I actually was like, no, I can't do this. And she cried. Mm -hmm. I'm, I mean, I'm super happy that you put, put your foot down and didn't bend to that garbage. I mean, it's not up to you to comfort her for being an idiot. I mean, really, like I try to tell people that all the time, like when you mess up and I get mad at you for messing up, you're not allowed to then get mad at me because you're the one who ultimately, you know, like, this starts getting down some weird rabbit hole and good. You stopped it. I love it. Mm -hmm. I had an ex-girlfriend once and we would go out and she would get smashed. Like she would be, she would go to the bathroom and then disappear. And I'd have to send somebody like, will you go check on her? Sure. Okay. They would come out with this defeated look on their face. <laughs> she wants you. Well, we're at a bar, and I'm not going into the women's bathroom. This is not okay under any circumstances. Eventually, we would get her to the car. I would get her into the house somehow, usually having to physically carry her. The next morning, I would be on this couch because she just dead weight in the bed, and I'm like, do you know what happened last night? The response was, and this is, I, this is where I was going with it. I just, I wasn't just telling this story because I like telling it. Um, oh, what a great story. Response, the response was always, well, I guess I'm just a bad girlfriend. What? I mean, I don't know what your problem is. It was always me that was, that was responsible for her. Right. And, and, so and her well-being. It's like, well, I mean, you could have got me out of the bathroom. No. No. Nope. Well, it's, it is, and it's the exact same story. How did black, our black friends become responsible for our actions? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Well, I think for our guilt and and concept of what's going on, it's like, I feel bad because I don't understand. And that's your fault because you're not explaining things to me in a way that I can understand. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, I I think white fragility, like the whole thing is, it's kind of like we're making this issue about us. Right. Instead of what the issue actually is. And I, I think, you know, one of those things I was talking about at the top, the, uh, the things, this is a new concept for me. Um, the idea that something can be racist, someone can do something racist, and it's not this binary of evil or ignorant people do racist things, everything else is an accident, right? Mm-hmm. Or I couldn't, like, I'm a good person, so nothing that I say or do could be racist or impact people Negatively. in a negative way. And mm-hmm. I, I think that, you know, like I said, that's a new concept for me that's probably not a new concept for a lot of people, right? <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I mean, even, even a lot of white supremacist talking points are very needy, I guess, for lack of a better term. Like, you know you sound like a bitch right now, right, dude? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, where It's like, no, man, white heterosexual males between 18 and 35, they're the most discriminated against group in America. Are they? Yeah, I mean, like, come on, dude. Like, that's not, whose fault? Like, what What are you trying to do? I mean, it's that, it's about us now. It's about me. But I get those students. I get those students. I get those students who will stand up when I do a lecture on alternative ways of celebrating the day we commemorate Christopher Columbus. Uh, <laughs> I get that. I, that's when I get the guy standing up and telling me, Christopher Columbus developed the Americas. Like, what do I, what do you mean by developed? Well, the people here, the indigenous people here were fighting among themselves and he, de- and I'm like, name for me a culture where there was no in um, uh, fighting among fighting, the people, right. name name. So, do we develop all cultures who have wars? Do but we that, do we develop them all of them? Yeah, white people do. Like, have you not? And was, that they're like, oh, but that black person said they don't like this. Well, yeah, it's like a few minutes ago you said you don't speak for everybody and you don't speak, but um. So let's go point out the one instance we can find <laughs> and make that about the billions of people it affects. But that one person is the authority on all things because they agree with what you have to say. Well, thank they God we got Kanye now. <laughs> Dear God. <laughs> Dear God. Oh, yeah. They, people are very passionate about Columbus Day, you guys. Yeah. Oh, no. Great. You know, he, what he did bring was... Uh, that damn poem. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's fine. He killed an entire. He committed basic. He helped commit genocide against an entire yes. people. That's fine. It's fine. You yes. Know. Um, I had one. I had a, 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 a French Canadian colleague who did a lecture on the genealogy of savage. You know, um, thinking about Tarzan. She did a whole analysis of why Tarzan should be critically looked at. And one of the students, white male, came to me after class and said he wanted an apology from her 
for challenging the idea of savagery. He wanted, because why would we say that we shouldn't call people savages? I have no words. <laughs> I was like, did you do the reading for today? <laughs> Number one. Come on. Did you do the reading? Let's make sure we are on the same. I said, do the reading, come to me, then to office hours. And he was so angry that he just, he wrote this review of me. And of course, we know through the research that oftentimes people experience faculty, people of color and women or minoritized groups, um, uh, not with regard to content, but their attitude. And so he like wrote this note about just how I was being so insensitive and that this is what he was taught in high school. And then I was like, well, this is why you go to college. So, you <laughs> so we can it's fix all of that. Yeah. So I don't know what to tell you. Well, also college is the place to, there, there shouldn't be any idea that couldn't be challenged, right? Like that's kind of. That's the point. But, but there it is, right? Mm -hmm. Because that presumes that they view me as an authority. Well, they don't always view me as an authority. Yeah, if the same conversation happened with a white male professor, it wouldn't happen. I mean, there you go. And, and that comes up yeah. all the time in faculty meetings. That's fact. I had one faculty person, we went to lunch, and I told him, I was like, I know that to teach global pop music is to deal with um, the distribution of musics of the world that were set into motion because of what happened in the music industry in Africa. And it's a long discussion. Um, but the entire field of music has focused on the West and Europe. And I told my colleague, I said, I need to recalibrate the course because I feel as though at a PWI, predominantly white institution, they experience the information differently from me than they would the authors who are white of the books that we are reading. And he was like, really, that's a thing? And I said, yeah, he was like, I, I don't, that, I've never thought about that. Like, he really was like, that's not a thing because I've never thought of it. And I said, but what happens is the students are challenged with me being qualified to assess them and push back. So we spend more time on whether or not this is verifiable as opposed to the actual analysis that we could be doing because they can't compute. I am challenging what they've learned. Right. Yeah. What are your, like you have to always be qualified enough. Mm -hmm. always At every step. Qualification all the time, all every the time. Step. And there it's constantly being instead of where you could just get into the meat of it. If you were a white man, I mean, and they would immediately take your word as gospel. I mean, it's how it is. Right. So, um, <laughs> no, and I think like, you know, while we're talking about this, like binary stuff and all that, you know, it's not because they have decided to walk into the classroom and be a jerk. It's because no. of like all the stuff that yeah. they have been experiencing their entire lives. When they think of a professor, they think of a white dude, an old yeah. white dude in a sweater vest. They don't think about you. Mm -hmm. Right. And so like, but then does this that is like, we're kind of at this point we've got to start challenging those thoughts that we have absolutely i think that's kind of the whole point of this right mm -hmm. yeah. what's even more fun is when i get second and third career students um southern second and third career non-black students and i'm younger than them 
Oh, I bet that's fun. That is fun. Oh, Alicia. <laughs> it is so fun. There are so many things they hate about that. I mean, I mean. I mean. <laughs> Boy, oh, they Lord. I had one woman coming to the class. She she sat down. She was like, well, I think I'm the oldest one in here. This ought to be great. I stood up. She was like, and she had visible, like, a visible conversation with her. <laughs> like, should, did, do I take, what did, did I just say something that, like, did I say anything that could be perceived as disrespectful to who I now know is my professor? And the entire semester, she just had a struggle. She was like, well, you know, I'm from Kentucky. And, you know, way back when, we didn't have professors who looked like you. You know, they, they used to be butlers and maids, but now they work behind cash registers. Can I get an extension on my... Okay. What? Let's talk about that, because you do talk about it in the panel. And, like, you know, people, it's like they can't... <laughs> unless they know somebody, it's like they can't even, the concept is foreign. And to me, um, that's really like, my, my rabbi actually tells a story about this is a bunch of different religious leaders in New York met together and they said, well, we want to learn about you so we can respect you. He said, I don't want you to have to, you should already yeah. respect me. You yeah. shouldn't have to know anything about me. You should never have ever had to have met a black person, a Jewish person, a Muslim person, <laughs> to, to respect them. They're a human. Why, why, like, why is this concept of like having to actually know, Oh, you know, I have this lovely black professor, yeah. right? Like, why is that? Why? Like, what is that? <laughs> like and it reinforces this idea of surveillance because if you don't know that person, then they are unsafe. And they don't you know, like the concept is yeah. like they don't even exist. Right? Why does this? I don't under. I just. It's something that to me is just. It doesn't. Compare, and it especially me. when it's somebody with a higher education, like this yeah. woman in your class. Yeah. Well, you know, one thing I do want to point out is that even as we talk about intercultural and interracial sort of, you know, clashes or convergences or misreadings, misrecognitions. Um, I am thankful, though, that I was raised in a household uh, where my parents, their understanding of God was multilingual, was multicultural. Um, uh, you know, I know evangelicalism is, is critiqued, but white evangelicalism is not the same as Black. So I'll put that out there. Yes, there are critiques. And I, a lot of my work critically affirms where I met God. However, one of the biggest things that I learned was um, that there was a pursuit of diversity in my tradition. And so when I got into the world in really competitive spheres, I knew the difference. My, my parents would point out injustice. We didn't dwell on it. It was, it was more of a shortcoming of society and maybe that person's willful obliviousness. Um, but it wasn't something that, um, that overtook our conversations. Um, and my parents were very protective. Um, I also want to share just a, the story of my first encounter with racism that might be, that's typically instructive. 
Um, I was, you know, I'm almost 40. I was uh, raised in DC, Washington, DC. And um, during the time where DC was described as um, the murder capital of the United States. And my parents moved out to Virginia, get more land, was, you know, safer. We went to the middle school. Uh, we wanted to transfer into the same sorts of services we got in DC, gifted and talented and after school sort of things. Um, and when we talked to the principal, the principal said to my parents, uh, if you need anything, let me know. If you need anything, let me know. If, if you need anything, let me know. So it was moved from a welcome to a warning, like immediately. It took about two months or so for me to get into comparable classes, my sister and I. And once I got in the class, there was, um, I wanted to be a scientist at the time, like many of us. I wanted to be like a marine biologist or something. And in DC, I was doing the science fairs and I was snatching the awards. It was pretty good. And so I really wanted to impress this teacher and I was doing all the work. I was like really trying to impress this teacher because I really wanted to be a scientist. And one day I went home, turned in my notebook that we got points for and my assignment came back the following Monday. And she had um, a documentary she wanted us to watch. And um, she told my best friend at the time, Katie Herndon, to go and watch it. And she asked me to come and talk to her. And when she talked to me, she said, where's, where's your assignment from Friday? And I said, I, I gave it to you. She said, well, go look around your desk to see if you can find it. I, I, I need you to find your assignment. So I went over to where the desk was. We had assigned seating. There wasn't much clutter, so I didn't understand why she had me go over there, but I looked, I didn't find it. I came back, I said, I didn't find it. And I was getting nervous because I really wanted to impress her. I really wanted to be a scientist. She said, huh, why don't you go out in the dumpster and look for it? And I was like, no. And it was the first time I ever said no to an adult. I was like, no. She was like, go look in the dumpster. And I said, absolutely not. Then she moved back from her desk, opened up her drawer and handed me my assignment. And she told me she wanted to teach me, and I'm paraphrasing, a lesson. In that moment, several things happened for me. Number one, I was like, it could be her word against mine. Number two, my dream of science in my mind just changed. And then number three, I said, I want to be a teacher because I don't ever want a kid to be this vulnerable under my watch. I could have gotten bitter because she wanted to teach this uppity Negro a lesson. I could have gotten bigger, bitter and said, I'm going to do to her the same, to, do to women like her, students like her who represent her, what was done to me, or I'm going to use the platforms I have to show that it's not just about merit that allows people to excel in science. It's access. It's assessment. It's um, mentorship. It is invitation. It's not just about standardized scores because I've had my standardized scores contested and then asked for by somebody's mother. It's not just about that. So this whole meritocracy thing, it's a lie.
is a lie. Who knows what that black girl has encountered before she gets to your steps as a student or as a colleague, you know? And so that was my encounter with realizing a difference in what vulnerability looks like. And I just want to make sure that with my mentees, um, the brilliant young woman who comes and is looking for a reflection of herself, I want to be that. For the white young men that I have plenty of who are my mentees, I want them to understand that that black lady that keeps saying the, that she's experiencing hassles, I want them to know what those hassles are so that they can be the colleague that is the difference. I'm seeing it, but it started with interactions like that where I knew but for the grace of God and really vigilant parents who knew what kind of student I was, I could have been one who was not believed and called crazy and a problem child. I don't even... <laughs> wow. I, I don't have words. I, it, it's, it's so disgusting to me, but what I... My overwhelming emotion about it is your reaction mm. and you not allowing that to make you a bitter, ugly person as a result. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so that as much as I like, I really hate that woman in the core of who I am, I am much more just impressed with you and your resolve as a young person, you're, and you're younger than I am. So this is not happening in some other time. It was different times. This is happening in the modern future and at a very unacceptable time, because since mm -hmm. all of us have been around, these things have not been okay. Okay. I mean, but this is still why we're having this conversation in 2020. Um, and so, you know, Rin's part of what, what Rin had is having these conversations. We've, they're uncomfortable and but we have to have them so is it because of all of this stuff going on now is it harder or is it easier to have these conversations like you know you're having with us the three white people you know um you know again i was raised to believe that if you appeal to folks character and to their reasoning um Things, you know, people may accept or they may deny, um, but at least know that you did uh, things with the purest of intentions. Um, in the midst of all of this, my, one of my, for example, one of my colleagues here had no idea how I, Calvin, my family was just exhausted. I mean, tired, hit a wall. And she just emailed me. She said, where do you like to eat? I want to send you a meal. No contact. I just, I, I want to feed you. When I say we didn't feel comfortable going to the grocery store um, because of some things that had happened, because of people pushing us, um, being sideswiped, um, accosting Calvin, as uh, he dropped me off, a man walked up to the car to curse out Calvin. We didn't feel comfortable moving about, but her doing that let me know that there are people who don't need to know the entire story, but they think about what they would want and they respond in those ways. That's sisterly to me. I'm interested in sisterhood. 
I'm not interested in allyship because really alliances are forged through life and death scenarios. And I don't think many people are up for that. I'm interested in how do you see a reflection of the divine of your family in me? That's what I care about. And with gestures like that, no questions asked, no need to say thank you. I'm doing what I would want. If I saw terror around me, I can, I can, that is a person I can be friends with. We can break bread, <laughs> literally. <laughs> you know, and being, I think one of the biggest things is that people want folks to give them some mercy. It's, it's the ache has been crazy. I couldn't even look at the full footage of what happened with George Floyd or think of Brianna. Like she was in her home. She was in her home. She was in her home. Sleeping. Sleeping. Minding her own business. In like, her home. If people would just start doing what the cops say to do, then we wouldn't have these problems, right? Mitch. <laughs> I promise it's sarcasm. No, I know. But similarly, <clears throat> with Sandra Bland, with Sandra Bland, yeah. when that happened, folks were riding around with Confederate flags around here like the Dukes of Hazard, And I had to go to work. I had to seem normal. How do you go to work and not say, I am scared because I am Sandra. I am moving about by myself like Sandra. She was a college employee. Prairie View, we are the same. And so for people who are cool with, and it's not even about cool, but who in their humanity say, if I was seeing this on the news, if I saw how illogical all this was, I would want someone to care for me. For those who treat me like they would want to be treated, I give thanks. Without anything in return. Can you be there without anything in return? So that, I guess that's another, what, what do you, how do you react or what do you think when a white person tells you they're not racist? Mm -hmm. I'm like, you're not ready. <laughs> <laughs> Be blessed, but we can't, we can't break bread. I don't want to visit your home because to tell me you're colorblind or that you're not racist um, means that you are not actively resisting the sorts of things that I face daily without any prompting, without any prompting. Like the simple thing, like people touch me without asking. I, I might have this joy on white women will come and touch and touch my hair. No, I don't know your name. I don't know your name. As friends, we need to know that these things happen so we can walk together, that people see black Alicia and that if we're moving about, I need you as a friend to be like, hold the sauce. She, hi, who are you? Why are you touching her? You know, she's not your possession. I need you, I need, you know, for folks to see those things. So it's dangerous. I don't think it's, I don't think it's sweet. I don't think it's comforting. And I actually think we can't, we can't do anything beyond what we are formally supposed to do. If we are, it, it's not sweet. Yeah. I don't think it's safe. What do we do to be better? One of the things that Calvin, I, I 
witnessed someone say on his campaign trail was, and it was a city official in Knoxville, they said, I'm disinterested in being uncomfortable. Um, and I think getting really clear about your relationship with comfort as white people is how we can deal with being better. Um, it, to, to be able to preserve comfort is a privilege. It is a privilege. And I think you're meaning comfort in just, right, like just being aware of our privilege and also, yeah, like you said, our, you know, being ready to fight if we have to. Mm -hmm. Take a risk. Mm -hmm. Take a risk. You know, you said something at the top about, you know, you've reiterated like not going to the grocery store alone and that, that in and of itself being like a complicated thing for you all. And I was like, that really struck me because, you know, in pandemic time, one of the things that they've told us to do is you've got one, pick one person in your house and they're the ones who go to the store. And so for us, you know, that's my husband, Shane, and he goes to the store in his anime t-shirt and we're real annoyed that we even have to go to the store, right? Because it's hot outside and people are dumb and annoying and <laughs> have to wear a mask and and yeah, even, yeah, even the idea people are, aren't even, there's people are so accustomed to comfort that wearing a damn mask is this terrible offense to their liberty. And I think what a great example it is of privilege. You know what I mean? Even the privilege to be a little bit safer in this time of a pandemic, right? Because, mm -hmm. you know, if we were you, uh, like, well, not we, only would we both have to go and, you know, then like one more person is at risk of catching something, but then we'd also have to take our baby. But also right? we get to take, you know, our discomfort is ended when we get in our car and take off our mask. Right. Mm -hmm. you know, our mm -hmm. Alicia and Calvin cannot take their skin off and become a white person. Mm -hmm. It's a completely different story. Like it, so it's I mean, like, we're so wrapped up in our discomfort and we get to be white. You know, mm -hmm. like, like, it's so stupid for these, for people to say these things. I'm like, no, no, you mm -hmm. didn't, you know, you didn't get a choice. We have a choice in how we act and react and help mm -hmm. you, you know, but don't complain about your discomfort. Yeah, right. Cause like you guys have to, it's an, it's an act, it's an active situation for you guys to think through every time you do anything. Mm -hmm. We just have to go. <laughs> Oh, which one of us is going to the store? And okay, just make sure you grab your mask. If Shane had to dress professionally to go to the grocery store never go or up. anywhere, he would become a recluse. He wears his plaid plant pants and, you know, his, his polo and his hat. And I will say, because there is, while there are these anxieties, um, it's important also to say that there are just the everyday customs, right? So we come from households where folks, it's, their, it's sort of their pleasure to couple. And so while um, we also know that we can't just adjust because of how people are acting, we actually like traveling together. Um, and I need people to understand that it's not just about reaction to whiteness 
but it is also our relationship. And I get what you're saying, but I need, it's important that people get that we also have lives. Yeah, and you know, the like in the midst of all of it. Yeah. And let me tell you why. And let me say, and I also tell you, I didn't plug in my computer computer. I'm happy to go get my um charger, but I'm like real low. But let me tell you. <laughs> we won't keep you much longer. You say what you gotta say. <laughs> so I was chatting, I um and I have amazing friends who come from all sorts of walks of life and who think critically um and who understand that this is a journey. Um, I did have a colleague once who, as I was speaking about <clears throat> my relationship, she's a scholar of people of African ancestry. And she actually said to me, she said, well, I didn't realize that black people, black women and men like each other. Yes, Mitch, that, that was my internal. <laughs> I don't. I don't know how to process what. Like, I of it. With all the love in her heart and her attempted girl talk, <laughs> she was like, "I didn't realize y'all like each other." And so, that's why I say that it's not just reactionary. It's actually sure. we enjoy each other's company, and where you know he's not patriarchal in that sense that he has to have his thumb on me and. We are worried about each other, you know, wandering eyes. We love each other. Um, we also realize in those moments where I do this thing while he does that thing that right now we got to coordinate in a different way. Yeah. Um, even In addition to we like being with each other, we just got to like it even more. <laughs> well, you, <laughs> you know? Talk, I mean, there is a difference. And so I have friends that have two daughters that, are, that were adopted from Africa. And you, know, you talked about culture, and and so they are they are African, they are American, mm -hmm. they're raised by white, they're culturally not black. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, trying to explain that, and so they mm -hmm. have all these really, they're really they're teenagers now, and they're really having this really weird struggle. And um, so there is a culture thing that some people aren't aware of, and you can be in that what perceived culture. Yeah. Not even really know, not even okay. necessarily know kind of your own because it, there's reasons why. Yeah. And I think people are well-meaning when in some ways they cause their, their children of color to assimilate. Um, however, when they move about in the world, there is a, a assumption that there are some things that are innate. So I have a friend, Mark Miller, who black man, um, African-American, so generations here, multiracial, actually, multiracial, but he presents more African-American. And all of his siblings were like Korean-American, I believe, in a European-American household. Um, he took a job at a Black church after going to Yale for undergrad, Juilliard for grad, for organ. And they asked him to play a traditional song called This Little Light of Mine. And he was like, oh, okay, I'm, that's in the hymnal. Let me play that. So he played it, dun, 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 And all the black folks were like, what is this? This ain't, this not, this little light of mine. And he was like, oh, maybe louder. So he played it louder, dun, 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 dun. They were like, that's not it. So then orally, through the oral tradition, they said, no, it's dun, 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 So he was like, that's not on the page. And they were like, precisely. 
It is an oral tradition. He was like, that's when I realized I was not culturally black. That I was presumed to be culturally black. So he always gives that to say, I'm learning gospel with y'all. So, yeah. So we've got, I think what we've wrapped up in here is like, we have a whole lot of assumptions about a whole lot of things. <laughs> we know nothing. Yeah, sorry for it all. <laughs> and we need to just be better. <laughs> well, we know, we know nothing, but we've got to be comfortable. Like, Learning. you know, I think the world would be a better place if everybody was like, just more like curious with tact. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Yeah. Absolutely. Curiosity can be a good thing. Just don't stare yeah. too much. There's a whole thing with whiteness and staring that could be uh, troubling to black folk. Like, what you about to do? It's troubling <laughs> to anybody. Why would anybody do that, right? Like, you think about it. It happens all the time. Nobody You can hear Calvin and I that. talk about it. We'd be like, they're staring at us. They're staring at us. Look. <laughs> Look at She's smiling. She's walking. Oh, God. She's walking toward us. <laughs> Trying to make you feel like she's an ally. I don't know. Yeah, no, this ain't the time. No drive-by allyship. <laughs> I love don't it. Do that. Does not no drive-by allyship. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I would say, um, Rin, you got anything else for Alicia? I'm just so <laughs> grateful that you spent some time with us. Like we appreciate it so much, and no surprise. You're a delight. <laughs> of course, you and Calvin go everywhere together. You guys are like a power couple, and we are. Thank you guys for being nice to him. Oh, <laughs> uh, we let me tell you, we were. I think we're feeling the same way now. You, conversations with you and Calvin are so enriching, and um, they, my heart is so filled with love. And um, you guys both really just you, you embody just wonderfulness and so it's nice to have I wish we could be in the same room but it's almost like it, it just I, I really enjoyed being able to sit you know here with you and just hear you, you well know? I think there's a lot more we could talk about if you'd want to come back on especially I think black feminism I think that's something that we should probably talk to someone else about <laughs> not, not just talk about ourselves <laughs> mm -hmm. and it would be what'd you say I'm an expert on it. I got it, <laughs> I got it covered. No worries. Oh, you're right. You're a white man. You're an expert on everything. Right. That's it's right. just so handy to have someone who knows it all. Perfect. Yeah, let me do it or I'm going to cry. <laughs> Why, do we need Google? Why do we need Google? I mean, we got Mitch. <laughs> Google is actually my middle name. I believe you, actually. <laughs> um, I would say we will, Alicia, we're going to we'll have links to your, you know, whatever, and, and anything you want everybody to know, you do have a new book. You want to talk about that really fast? Like, yes. Cause I have 3%, but I yeah. enjoy you guys. Yeah. <laughs> um, so this book actually um, was uh, flaming the peculiar theopolitics of fire and desire and black male gospel performance actually is um, worth uh, research on black men and worship. And it resulted from observing the ways in which men move about differently in the world and how um, our surveillance of them trickles into uh, uh, their worship experiences. And so it's been getting a lot of buzz. Our folks have been receiving it. The emails from young men 
who are dealing with ideas uh, surrounding identity um, have been really humbling. And I really am excited to share the stories. Um, my most popular article is expanded in it and it's entitled Pole Dancing for Jesus. It's about a man who pole worships God, um, not your liturgical dance. And, um, <laughs> and some other sort of similarly provocative case studies that really challenge what we presume to be true uh, about uh, gender expression and sexual orientation. Love it. That's <laughs> awesome. Well, we will have links to that, your bio, all the stuff. You can get the am book on Amazon. I got it on Amazon. So Damn, we could have a whole episode about that. Yes. Please. It's pretty fun. Like cool. I saw that you uh, studied men's studies. Yes. And my first like sexist jokey thought was, why? Right, right. right. <laughs> You're normal. You're normal, but my men's studies actually um, has prompted men to say, well, I can do women's studies. That, that's it. Yes. That's yes, fantastic. Please yes, <laughs> um, Well, so we'll have that. Um, you can find, we will release this video because Dr. Alicia Lola Jones has given us permission to do so. So this will go up. You'll get our audio. We will share all of this on our website and the other f word.com yep that you could find us on facebook you can find us on instagram at that other f word pod and uh if you haven't yet subscribe subscribe <laughs> subscribe and rate <laughs> and like us and um make a friend listen and then i guess uh dr jones would you remind our listeners what they should always remember Isn't a bad word. Oh, the F word? Uh, always remember that. Feminism isn't a bad word. Oh, always remember that feminism isn't a bad word. <laughs> Thank you so much. Calvin, a hug for us and have him hug you for us since we can't, we're social distancing. So. <laughs> Thank you, thank you, thank you. And if you got any anything else you want to chat about, holla. Absolutely, thank, thank you. you so don't much. give them that option. <laughs> <laughs> I assure you, it is thank a door we will walk through. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Google. <laughs> thank you so much, Alicia. You have a wonderful rest of your weekend. You too. Thank, thank you, guys. You. Talk to you. Bye. Bye.